<clears throat> to come. Um, so we're continuing in the series. This is week six. The date's wrong in the inside of your bulletin because we already printed it a couple weeks ago, and I thought, ah, we'll just reuse it. We don't need to correct the date that much. <clears throat> um, doing this series, going through much of the content that is in um, the unseen realm or supernatural, and I've, I've had a lot of conversations with a number of you who have, who have picked up uh, one or more of the books and had a chance to kind of trek through there and be exposed to some biblical scholarship that you, it, it might be kind of new to you. Uh, it, it might be a little weird sounding um, because we're moderns and this is things that we just don't get exposed to a whole lot. But hopefully, we've been saying this from week one, is that you're going to start to connect dots in your biblical theology. You'll start to go, oh, that's why that's there. That makes sense of that. And it helps me understand it so much better, and that, and that we don't have to be afraid of our Bible. It's not going to harm us. Um, it's, it's God's Word. It, it will still stand. And so what we've done is uh, week one, just to kind of recap, it's, it's been a month. I, I, was, I was noticing the last time that, that I taught was February 23rd, right? And uh, it's, it's March 23rd. So it's been literally a month since we had part one and I didn't get through all of it. So I'll, I'll kind of summarize a little bit of where we've been and then we'll jump into some new material here tonight. But we looked at this idea that, that God has uh, a divine counsel. He has uh, supernatural beings who are his imagers, not here in the terrestrial world, but in the celestial world, you might say. And there's hierarchy there. There's different tasks. There's different job responsibilities. There's order and there's structure. And we said this is important to see because one, we see it show up in a lot of places in Scripture, but also it, it works as sort of a template for how God thinks about you, not just now, certainly not, but in the future, eternity. You ever have those questions of what is eternity going to be like? What is, what is new creation? Uh, what's that going to be like? And, and, and there are some observations that we'll make as we go through this. And, and then we, we turned and said, we're going to look at these three great rebellions in Scripture. And they really frame the whole rest of the story. And we as Western evangelicals are really familiar with the first one, the garden uh, one. We're less familiar with the other two. So we're familiar with Genesis 3, that's the garden. But Genesis 6 and Genesis 11, those ones we're less familiar with, but they, it's sort of a three-legged stool. We've said many times that it, it, if you only have one of those, it's just not going to make sense. The whole story, pieces of it will, but it's really a broader picture. And we, we, we covered them in reverse, and I think tonight maybe you'll see the reason for that. We started with the, the last rebellion, which is Genesis 11, paired with Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 gives some commentary to what went on there. In Genesis 11, this is the Tower of Babel incident. Um, and and uh, judgment comes. God, God judges the people. And um, we've said a couple times, it's sort of like the Romans 1 of the Old Testament. Romans 1 of the passage where it says God just turned humanity over to their own sinfulness. You know, sort of like, is this the way you want to live? Fine. Let's see how that works out for you. So he, he disinherits all the nations who knew him. He, he assigns them to lesser Elohim, lesser sons of God, as they're called in the text. And 
and it's a judgment on them. And what we find out later is those sons of God at some point later, we don't know when, we're not told when, they become corrupt. They rebel. And so the nations that they're assigned to, they're exploiting, they're, they're being unjust with them, and, and God condemns them and says, you're going to be judged. But those are the ones that in the New Testament Paul refers to as the principalities, the powers, the rulers, the authorities. Remember some of that language that Paul uses? That's the group of the sons of God that he has in mind, these rebellious once. And then, of course, we know God supernaturally picks and creates a people uh, sort of out of thin air, <laughs> uh, Abraham, to be his own people. And the rest of the Bible, it's Yahweh against the rebellious gods. It's the nations against Israel. But God's still committed to bringing those nations back to himself. And then we went to the second great rebellion, which is Genesis 6. And this is a different group of the sons of God. They're also called the watchers in other places. And they transgress the boundaries of heaven and earth and with women create sort of um, rival people, these Nephilim, who, who become the giant clans that we encounter throughout much of Israel's history, the occupation of the land and so forth. And so that's one problem. The other problem there was that these watchers of the sons of God, they, they amplified humanity's depravity, the proliferation of evil. They, they taught them things, according to Peter and Jude in the New Testament, false teaching, which was it, it further corrupted human nature and us being imagers of God and God's call on our life. And so God condemns that group of the sons of God and sends them to the underworld, to the abyss. We'll talk a little bit about some of that. And then <clears throat> last week we started talking about the, the first rebellion, the one that happens in the garden. And this is one, that, again, we're, we're, we're much more familiar with. We're not going to go through the whole story because we are pretty familiar with it. But I do want us to focus on some points that maybe is, it's less familiar or, or maybe we just miss it easily. It, it tends to kind of fly over our heads. But what we looked at last week was, um, as we think about the garden, we are to think um, about the idea that um, it's a temple. Do you remember that? <clears throat> that there, there are all of these clues in pages 1 and 2 and 3 that to any ancient reader would say, oh, God's building an abode for himself to live in. All of these different things, ancient temples, always were inaugurated in a seven-day ceremony. Well, what do we have in Genesis? It's a seven-day ceremony. Um, it's oriented to the east. All ancient temples were oriented to the east, and it uses that language. It's, 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 uh, it's noting to the ancient reader, this is a temple. This is where Yahweh God is going to come and live. And then we see on the seventh day, God comes and rests or rules, reigns in that temple. And that becomes the control center of the cosmos. That's where God is going to rule, in, in Eden. And we saw that the whole world is not Eden. It was a small parcel of, of land. And that the humans were tasked to, okay, what I've done in here, you're going to go outside of Eden, which is, it's not under control and maintained, and you need to have dominion over it. You need to bring it under submission. So you're, you're acting in my stead. 
I've done that here. We're going to partner with this Edenic vision. Eventually, the whole earth is going to be Eden, but it's not yet. And it's a big job, so have a bunch of kids and get going, right? That's what's going on. And so God's living here. That's why when we see passages where it says he's, he's walking in the cool of the day, that's not odd. This is his abode. This is where he is living with his human family. Um, further, another thing that would cause not just an ancient reader, but an ancient Israelite who reads pages one, two, and three to know, oh, this is certainly God's abode. Think about their familiarity with their temple in Jerusalem, okay? All the high holy days, all the festivals, they go, their lives center around the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, right? Well, what have they seen every time they go in there? Well, they see garden imagery. Looks like a jungle in there. There are exotic animals, lions, carved into things. You look at the tapestry, and there's palm trees and, 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 uh, and pomegranate trees, right? Everything in that place looks like an artificial garden. There's even, in fact, let me just uh, pop this up for you here. <clears throat> what does this look like? This is the menorah. It's the golden lampstand. It's one of the most prominent things inside the temple. But what does it look like? A tree. It is a tree. <laughs> it's designed to be a tree. What tree do you suppose that is? It's not just any tree. The tree of life. The tree of life represented humanity's conditional immortality. That's why, remember, when they sin, they rebel. He says, let's get them away from that. <laughs> they don't have access to it anymore. And death enters the scene. Everything inside the temple, it's, it's, it's garden, it's animals. They, they think of it every single time they go in there. This is the garden. And of course, who lives there in the temple? Yahweh, Yahweh God. So when they go back and they pick up Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and they're reading it's a seven-day sequence, and there's animals there, and there's trees. And, oh, this is God's abode. This is where God lives. That's immediately where their mind goes when they think of this. <clears throat> so the whole temple, it's, it's designed around the idea to make the person who uh, knows it, is familiar with it, to have their mind go back to the Edenic ideal, the abode of God, where God is again living with his human family. And what we're going to see is God is so committed to saying, there's plan A, there's no plan B. I, I will have my human family. I will live with them in their presence. Even though, again, it, it, it goes off the rails and it's seemingly maybe we'll never be able to come back. But we also know that God has a divine family. Again, the ones who are called the sons of God. And here's, here's the reality about when in Scripture, this is the way the ancient mind thought, when they thought of wherever Yahweh is, his entourage is, his divine counsel, wherever the king is, his divine counsel would be there as well. So when we think about the story, page three, Adam and Eve placed into God's abode. We know God's there. He's walking. He's, he's, he's present. Who else would be there is the question. The, well, the divine council, the sons of God, 
those divine beings would also be there. And we looked at, let me just go out to um, this, we looked at two different passages. Um, well, let's see here. Let me, well, yeah, I'll just reference this one because I did last uh, time as well. This is the psalmist reflecting on this reality that God who, who created all things, and this is the passage that says, you know, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than, it's the, the Elohim, the gods, the divine beings. You've made us just one step underneath them, but we're all living in this kind of same area. And we read uh, that at the beginning of the creation, who was there before humanity was there? This is God asking Job the question, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he says, you know, tell me all this stuff. When, and here's the key part, when the morning stars, that's a reference to divine beings, supernatural beings, when the morning stars sang together, and the, here's that phrase again, and the sons of God shouted for joy. They're at creation. They're there, okay? Um, so, so therefore, when... Um, Oh, yeah, I'll just mention this one as well. This is kind of... Um, this is a passage, Isaiah 14. It's a passage talking not about the original rebel. It's talking about someone else who is, is at the height of hubris, a very prideful leader. And the author is comparing that original rebel in the garden to him and saying, you guys are, you guys are just alike. <laughs> you guys are motiv- motivated by the same thing. And it says, how you have fallen from heaven... O day star, son of the dawn, how you have been cut down to the ground. <clears throat> this is where we, in the, uh, the old Latin translation of this, translate day star, son of the, like the shining one, translates it Lucifer. So that's where we get our word Lucifer from. It's, it's a Latin just meaning the, the bright, the bright one, the shining one. But this, we'll kind of learn some terminology, vocabulary here <clears throat> as we go. Um, I want to get to Ezekiel, though. Let me get to... Did I already pass it? Oh, maybe I closed out of it. Ezekiel is a passage which... Um, yeah, let me, just, let me just go to here because it's going to be helpful if you can see it. Ezekiel 28. I don't know if I could spell... E-K, Ezekiel chapter 28. Um, this is another one of these prophecies where, um, or judgment statement where Ezekiel is comparing uh, the king of Tyre to that original rebel. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Mentions all of these bright, this is going to make sense, bright stones, things that are shiny, shiny ones. Um, you were what? an anointed guardian cherub. That's one of the members of the divine council. That's a role, that's an office within God's administrative staff. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. Now you might look at that and go, wait a minute, is, is Eden a garden or a mountain? Yes. <laughs> Remember, we talked about the other week, for the ancient mind, the mountains and gardens were where divine beings lived. And so, you know, we talked about ziggurats, Right? What you do is you build artificial mountains then because you want your God to come there was the idea. So this is just common ancient ideas of 
when, when you speak of where God's presence is, you use language that makes sense to your community. You use mountain language. You use garden language, and we walked all through that. But again, it, it refers to him multiple times. Here we go again, the uh, O guardian cherub. So it's, I believe, speaking back about that original rebel, the one on page three of the Bible, and it's identifying he had an office a role, a task, a title, as a cherub. Now you might say, okay, what's a cherub? <laughs> um, a, a, a cherub or a seraph, one's Mesopotamian, one's Egyptian, doesn't matter, they're both kind of the same sort of things. These were throne guardians. These are divine beings who have a role in God's counsel. And so both Ezekiel and Isaiah, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, refer to that original rebel, and they say, oh, you, you were this high, exalted one who had a high status. You had, you, you had an important office within God's divine counsel. But man, you just you threw it away. And as a result, and this is one of the key passages, this also is in both Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, I cast you to the ground. In Hebrew, that's Eretz. It just means the dirt. Eretz also came to be known as the underworld. So if you use the word Eretz, you might be referring to just dirt, the ground, or you could be referring to the realm of the dead, what, what oftentimes is, is um, spoken of as Sheol or Sheol. So this divine being rebelled and is cast to Eretz, earth slash the underworld. And this is why then he gets thought of and spoken of as he's the Lord of the underworld because he's the first one who's there. And because death enters in, we know that's the consequence to Adam and Eve's rebellion and sin. We'll look at the idea, well, why is he called the God of this world or the God of the underworld? In what sense does that even make sense or why should we say that? Um, now, let me, let me pause and address one thing, because this is something that we oftentimes, um, I've gotten this question, it's a great question, but oftentimes when, when we are, are looking at this idea that, well, shouldn't all of the biblical content be stuff that's totally unique to the Bible and it's not shared by Mesopotamians and Egyptians and all that sort of thing, sometimes we're almost even uncomfortable with the fact that a biblical author is going to leverage something that that uh, Canaanites do, like an idea, I mean, an idea or a concept, an image. And we, th- and we think, well, why don't these do something totally different? Well, here's, here's why. Suppose a biblical author, okay, prompted by the Holy Spirit, he's going to sit down and write something out, maybe for posterity. And he says, I want to talk about sacred space. I want to talk about where God is. But I'm going to do it in a way that no one will understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> That would be stupid, right? That would be totally stupid to do. He's going to leverage and use common trappings, common ideas, right? And he's going to draw them in, and then he's going to hit them between the eyes with theology. That's unique to Yahweh. You see that there? You, you have to use sameness to teach differentness, right? So a lot of the, the trappings, the concepts, the ideas, yeah, they're going to be all over the Medi- ancient Mediterranean world. They're going to be shared by Egyptians, and they're going to use similar images and pictures and ideas because that's their shared culture, right? 
But the theology, so for instance, the way they um, might reference sacred space, God's divine mountain. Well, you know, the Ugaritic god El, he also had a divine mountain. But what goes on in sacred space for the Canaanite versus the Israelite? Very different what happens in there. (laughs) We mentioned last week one thing that's very unique. It's only Yahweh who builds his sacred space and then says, I want you to come live with me. That's totally unique. All the other gods were like, ugh, humans, you stink. Stay away. Stay away from me. You know, you're you're kind of the unwashed masses. I don't want to have anything to do with you. You serve me. You're a slave. Maybe the king will be my son, something like that. Uh, You know, Pharaoh was considered the uh, god horse. You know, so only the Pharaoh, but not, not the average person. And that's such a unique thing about the Bible is he says every single human being is an imager of mine, and I want you to live with me. I'm not trying to distance myself. Now, he does distance himself after the rebellion, but only with the intention of bringing them back. So hopefully that, again, I think is, is a helpful realization to make as we're studying Scripture and then looking, where did this concept appear in other cultures and other groups to help me understand what's going on here. So this location, this Edenic location, it's spoken of as a cosmic garden, cosmic in the sense of that's where divine presence is, or a cosmic mountain, because that's where divine presence is, where God is. <clears throat> and um, humanities there, as we looked at, um, were created a little bit lower than the Elohim. Uh, we saw from Job 38 that um, his divine family is also there. And we're supposed to see, this is kind of where we left off last week, we're supposed to see a connection between God, his divine family, and his human family. We're, we're supposed to see our, ourselves as sort of like a mixed family, a blended family with intention, the intent of we're going to be together. There's going to be a togetherness in this. So here's the big question. What about the serpent? Who is he? What do we know about, I'm saying him, but it's, you know, whatever it might, it might be. Um, we know he's called the shining one. We know he's um, dispensing divine information, right? He's communicating things to uh, Eve, saying, you know, I'm, 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 I'm dispensing knowledge to you. Divinization is, is that concept. So <clears throat> what do we know about this? So the word, and if I think you guys, I think this is in your bulletin. There's some, um, yeah, like helpful vocabulary in there. So that third uh, word, word down there, nahash, that's, that's the Hebrew word that we're translating serpent, nahash. And, and, and I give you that because it's, it's sort of a play, kind of a play on words, if you can think about it like that. Um, some scholars suggest, I, I think this is very reasonable, that it's a, it's a triple entendre. You know what like a double entendre is or a triple entendre? Let me, let me give you an example of one that... Um, when I was in, anyone here like Rush, the, the band? When I was in um, college, <clears throat> I had a roommate named Jason Kaiser, and uh, he loved Rush. He had Rush albums up on the wall, like around the room, you know, like every two feet there was one, I don't know, taped or something 
I didn't really know much about Rush, but 1981, Rush came out with an album, and the album of it is called Moving Pictures. Okay? The front cover has a double entendre with that phrase. Here's what I mean. Do you see the men in the red suits? They're movers. Do you see what they're doing? They're moving pictures. Okay? The people on the right in the black, they're weeping because they're looking at pictures that are emotionally moving. You get it? Okay. They're moving pictures, and then they're looking at moving pictures, right? The, the back of the album backs up further, same shot. There's the movers moving pictures. There's people who are emotionally looking at moving emotionally pictures. And then there's a film watching it all, a moving picture, a motion picture. You see it? Okay. So it's a, it's a triple entendre, which is to say the phrase moving pictures can have different meanings, and when you put them all together, you're like, oh, I see what's going on here. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Nahash is, <clears throat> I think, uh, a triple entendre. It has a very obvious meaning to it, but it also has other meanings that kind of help you go, oh, that's why those biblical authors like Isaiah and Ezekiel, why do they refer to them as the shining one? Why do they do that? <clears throat> it's because of the, the words and what's going on here. Um, the noun nahash just means serpent on a very basic level. If you take the root, just the consonants for nahash, and you, you make it a, in, the, in its verb form, then it means one who dispenses divine knowledge. Well, do you remember what the serpent was doing? It's a serpent, but what's he doing? He's going, hey, I got some divine information for you that uh, God doesn't want you to know. Right? He's keeping it from you, but I have the divine information. And then in another noun form, nahash means the shining one. So do you see that? The, <clears throat> the author is using this word, and as we saw last week, uh, if you remember seraphim, their Egyptian iconography is a serpent, usually a flying serpent. And you've seen that on, on the head of the pharaoh. What does he have on the, on the top of his head? He's got a serpent, right? It's, the, it's because serpents were considered um, throne guardians. Like, you see how it's all coming together? When the biblical authors are writing about what's going on, who's there, what's happening... Why is, have you ever wondered, why is Eve not freaked out when a snake starts talking to her, right? Because there's so much more going on. It's, that, it's not a member of the animal kingdom. This is a supernatural, divine member of God's household who has an office, a job, okay, this throne guardian, and it, it's oftentimes viewed as serpentine-like, and it's a nechash. It's defense, it's dispensing divine information. It's this illuminescent, uh, shining one, and it's this throne guardian. So to the ancient mind, they see this picture, it's like, oh yeah, like they're filling the whole thing out <laughs> in their mind and what's going on here. Listen, listen to this passage. I'm just going to read a short, a short section for you. The serpent, Nahash, was an image commonly used in reference to a divine throne guardian. Given the context of Eden, that helps identify the villain as a divine being. The divine adversary dispenses divine information. Right? That's one of the, you know, the triple entendre thing there. 
using it to goad Eve. He gives her an oracle or an omen. You won't really die. God knows when you eat of it, you will be like one of the Elohim. Last, because remember, we're created a little bit lower then. You want to you wanna get a raise? <laughs> this is all you have to do. Lastly, a shining appearance conveys a divine nature. That's how divine beings are spoken of in the Old Testament. That's why they're likened to the stars in the sky, because they shine, and that's what they're like. All the meanings telegraph something important. They are also consistent with the imagery of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. <clears throat> so now here's a, let me, let me jump to last book of the Bible. Um, John, in Revelation chapter 12, when he thinks about that old, that old serpent, okay, the Nachash, <clears throat> In Revelation 12, get rid of that. Here we go. Um, we read this. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent, who's that? That's the Nachash, that's the uh, enemy on page three. Um, and remember in uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, it said he was cast to the Eretz. He was cast down. Okay, that's, that's, that's what he's got going on in his mind here. Um, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This is a reference to, by the way, um, what took place at the birth of the Messiah. This is not referring to anything that happened in the primordial past, or you know, ancient past or pre-creation past. This is a reference to a defeat in the unseen realm at the birth of the Messiah. But now, why do I bring this up? Many Old Testament scholars, especially that, that you might pick up if you pick up like a commentary, they're um, real nervous to call the serpent Satan. They're, they're kind of like, ah, no, I think the real critical ones will even say, you know, New Testament, they're, they're just making stuff up out of thin air. Why do they say that? Because the serpent in the Old Testament is never called the proper name Satan. He's never referred to as Satan. <clears throat> um, in fact, there is no person whose proper name in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, capital S-A-T-A-N. Satan. Now, your mind might immediately go, wait a minute, what about the book of Job? Doesn't the book of Job have this Satan character in there? Um, <clears throat> let me go to that. Here we go. So, Job uh, 1.6, and I mean, th throughout the first s several chapters, we, we see this kind of again and again. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, so who's that's divine counsel, right? The sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh. And it says, Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered Yahweh and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. And Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
right? And we kind of know, kind of know the story. Here's, here's the problem. This, I'll just click on, see if I, okay. I don't know if you can see that panel that's listed down below. Um, this is not a proper name. It's Satan, but what's always listed before Satan in these passages, any time, it's the, the definite article, the Satan. Ha is the Hasatan. That's always consistently used. And Hebrew, just like English, it doesn't prefix a proper personal name with the definite article. Right? Um, like, you're not the Jim. <laughs> okay? I mean, I like to think of myself as the Brent, right? I tell my family I am the Brent. <clears throat> they don't believe me. Um, but it, it just doesn't make sense. And it's the same in Hebrew. If you ever have a definite article before a personal property, it can't be a proper personal name. Well, every single example, for instance, I'll just click on this Satan here. Um, these are all the times it occurs, for instance, where it, it translates it, Hasatan, as capital S-A-T-A-N, uh, Chronicles, Job, Numbers, um, Zechariah, couples. They're all Hasatan. They might think, so why do we do it? Well, the older translations, like the King James Bible, um, translated it a proper name. And newer translations, if, I mean, for all honesty, the reasons they don't translate it, the adversary, because Satan just means the adversary, the opposer, the one who's pushing back. The reason they don't is people would freak out not by the Bible, because, because well, that's got to be Satan. That's, I've, I've you know, read my grandma's Bible, and it says Satan. You know, like a, this is the, the devil character of page three of the Bible, and it's not. It's not. What is the adversary? What is Hasatan? This is a member of God's divine council who has a task, has a job. In this, in this book, it's, there's a whole thing in Old, in Old Testament biblical theology called the books. There are like, I think like five or six different books mentioned, you know, the book of life, the book of whatever. And it's not the idea that God has to write things down or else he'll forget. It's the idea that nothing is missed. Everything is recorded. And so he's, he, he assigns some of his divine council members to do tasks. Remember, he's partnering with us. He doesn't do everything himself. He could. He wants to partner with us. This is a divine council member whose, whose, whose job is to observe what's going on. He's just doing his job. Hey, where have you been? Oh, I've been walking up and down. I've been observing. I've been doing the job that you gave me to do. And then he asks, have you, have you seen my servant, Job? And the, the opposer says, he pushes back. And he goes, well, first of all, he questions God's honesty, right? So he's just crossed the line now. Because now it's in everybody's mind, well, is Job just doing it because he's got a, a good life? And so God says, okay, you can, you can do anything, but you can't kill him, you know, eventually. And, and the reason why that is, of course, is if he, if he kills him, the opposer could have said, well, you know, he died, but had he gone much further, he would have failed. <laughs> and God's saying, no, I'm, I'm accurate, I know Job, I know what's going on here. But this is not the, the rebel figure of Genesis 3, even though, again, folk theology, that's how we naturally think of it. But it's, it's just not the case there or in some of these other places. And I'll, let me just give you kind of another example of one why. Numbers 22, I'm not going to click out to it. Can you see that at all? 
Numbers 20, uh, do you remember the prophet Balaam? He's got his donkey, and he's going to go deliver um, judgment, something on Israel. And it says he's going, and his donkey stops because his donkey sees the angel of the Lord. Do you remember that? And he's got a sword in hand. And um, he's called, in fact, let me just go out to it so you can see it here. Uh, numbers, here we go. So this is Balaam. Um, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in his way with sword drawn. Uh, verse going down, it says, Why have you struck your donkey three times? Behold, I have come out to... Let me see if I can... Do you see what, what word it is there right here? The angel of the Lord is Satan. Well, the angel of the Lord isn't Satan. <laughs> Capital S, right? This is a role. It's a job description. It's, it's something you're playing at that moment. The angel of the Lord is Satan to Balaam. Again, don't think he's, uh, he's opposing him. He's challenging. He's pushing back. That's what Satan means. And anytime it's the Satan, he's just saying the opposer. So when you read in Job or wherever, um, read it with that. When you come across Satan, read the adversary, the opposer, something along those lines. That's what is being referred to here. <clears throat> so now, um, Jewish thinkers over time, as, as they're reading their Bibles, as they're thinking about that original rebel, because here's the question that comes to mind is, so that religion, like, is John in Revelation 12 wrong that the serpent wasn't Satan the devil? No, he's not wrong. <laughs> By the time you get to the second temple period, when the New Testament's written, they've got a whole grab bag of words. <laughs> Diabolos in Greek, uh, <clears throat> Satan. Um, the serpent. They've got a whole, whole bunch, because Jewish people thinking, they go, you know, that original guy, he really is opposing. He really is, you know, a Satan, the Satan, to God's view. So it's not wrong to do it. I'm trying to, I, I'm just explaining why you're going to find in, if you pick up a commentary, people saying, well, we really can't call him Satan. That's not Satan. Well, no, it is. It just, the fact that it wasn't, he wasn't called that particular name in the Hebrew Scriptures, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> he is an opposer, right? He is pushing back. He is um, someone who is contrary to what God is doing. He is the original rebel. John in Revelation 12 is not wrong. He is absolutely getting it right. But the consequence of the Nahash getting the human family to rebel. And I suppose maybe he had in his mind, you know, these beings who are lower than me, they're going to be part with us. If I get them to sin, God will just wipe them out. Maybe that's what's going on. And of course, God's so committed. He goes, nope, I'm not going to wipe them out. I'm going to redeem. I'm going to restore my original. There's no plan B. I'm sticking with plan A. <clears throat> so it's interesting. We, we see this transgression of Eve and her husband, Adam. It's interesting, some of the language that's used, this is just sort of a side coming here. Do you remember the language that's used in Genesis 3 where it says, she saw that it was pleasing to the eye, and so she took it, you know? That phrase gets picked up and used, look how many times you'll see that phrase used. Um, Genesis 6, the one where it said, the watchers, the sons of God, 
saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took for them. End of Genesis. Remember Joseph? He gets sold into Potiphar's um, house. You know the language that's used of Potiphar's wife? She saw that he was attractive, and she tried to take him. It's this, it's this cool, interesting literary device that every time it's used, you're supposed to think back to page three. Oh, man, that's when it all went wrong. And yet that's now a part of us. I have a tendency to see something as an object, and I see that it's good for me, and I want to grasp it. I want to take it. And I think that's an apt description of the human heart, isn't it? The human heart has a tendency, I will, I will even exploit you <laughs> if I have to, because I want something. And so I will use you, I will do whatever it takes, because I have this insatiable need, this desire in my heart to grasp, to fulfill, to meet my own needs, rather than trusting God to meet my needs. And that's, I mean, that, there's some application there. Where in my life, where in your life would you say, I'm at a place where I'm not really trusting him to meet my needs. I'm forcing it. I'm seeing it, and man, I'm, I'm wanting it. I'm lusting, and I'm grabbing after it. I'm pursuing it. So when we think about, and you know we've said this all, all the way along in this series, in the Jewish mind, when they thought of the Messiah, the one who's going to come, he's got to address all of these things, right? He's got to address the, what happened in Genesis 3? Well, two things happened. Death entered in. Remember the tree? That's gone. We don't have access to it. So we lost that conditional immortality. So we're now mortal. Death has entered in. <clears throat> to our life, and then separation from God. And so as, as Jesus comes, the Messiah, he, is, he has got to address these issues. Let me, let me go to just a couple uh, passages here that are, that are helpful. Um, 2, Corinthi uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, the Apostle Paul, with many of these things in mind, he writes this, "'Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God,' We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, <clears throat> underhanded ways. That's that see and grasp thing, right? It's like we're putting that aside. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Did the, did the Nahash tamper with God's word in the garden? Yeah. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of the Messiah, of Christ, who is the image of God. Why is it that he's called the God of... Now, again, God of, of this earth, again, think of it as Eretz. Yeah, it, it's, the, it's the earth, but it's kind of it's the bad place. <laughs> Why is it that he's the God of, of the dead? Because everyone dies now. Everyone goes to the place of the dead. So he's sort of the original rebel. He's been cast down into the underworld, and everyone's going there. So in that sense, he owns their location, so to speak. He owns what happens to them, even though he has been cast 
down. 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. See, because it happened to him too. Uh, if there's going to be a resurrection, there has to be a death first. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, fallen asleep is just a common euphemism for, for death uh, in the ancient world. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Uh, Christ, the first fruits, just like you would get first fruits when you harvested, um, he's, he's the first fruits of the, the resurrection breaking out in humanity, because he was the first one who rose. Then, at his coming, when he comes back, his second coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying, this is Genesis 11, after destroying every ruler, remember the sons of God who were, who, were, who were put over the nations, rulers, powers, principalities, after destroying them and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And I love this last verse, the last enemy to be destroyed. What happened on page three? Death the conditional immortality that we lost, he's going to destroy that. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. For any one of you who, is, who has lost someone in Christ, man, we have a hope. We have an absolute hope. Listen to, and we'll close with this, two verses here. This is John in the book of Revelation. And <clears throat> he says this, now, think about all the things that we've been talking about, and, and, and all these ideas are laced into what he's saying as he's writing this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Sometime we'll get into that. It doesn't literally mean there's no dolphins and stuff. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is so cool, behold the dwelling place, where was that on page one and two? It was Eden. The dwelling place of God, it's back with man. Plan A, it's still plan A. He's going to accomplish it one way or another. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death, page three, no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, they've passed away. And then in the very next chapter, he says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of that city. <clears throat> also, on either side of the river, oh, here it is, <laughs> the thing we lost on page three and we only had a candelabra thing to remind us of it. 
the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Those are the nations that were divided in Genesis 11. No longer will there be anything accursed. So that curse that entered in, in the garden, nothing is going to be cursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face again. Remember when He walked in the cool of the day? We're going to see His face be with him. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? (laughs) Man, that's what I want. That's what I'm waiting for, what I'm looking for. God's goal has been to restore Eden. God is going to have this entire world will be Edenic. Not because we could accomplish it, we couldn't. He's, that's why it came out of heaven, you know, that whole picture of coming out. He's saying, I'm going to bring Eden. I'm going to do what no human could ever do, no dream of utopia could ever accomplish. I'm going to do it. And he's going to set all of those things right, all of the evils and the brokenness, as C.S. Lewis puts it in his book of Narnia, everything sad will come untrue. <laughs> that's new creation. That's our hope. And this is how committed he is to it. He said, even I, if, if, if it requires, and it does, my death, if I have to enter into the place of the dead in order to bust it open and to bring all of them with me, that's what I'll do. And so we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to celebrate the, the, the giving of the life of the divine Son of God, the utterly unique one who loves you that much. I don't even love you that much. I like you. I don't love you that much. He loves you that much. So during this song, go to one of the tables around the room, if you would like, get the elements, and in your own time, in your own speed, whatever, take the bread, picture of his body broken for us, and the cup, his blood shed for us. When you've done that, would you stand and let's sing out? Closed. Uh, close just by reading this one scripture, Romans 8.31, this great reminder for us. What then shall we say to these things, all of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring in charges against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who will condemn? King Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of the king? It ends. (laughs) Nothing. Nothing. You guys, thank you so much for for leaning in, for just... uh, being a part of this community. I love you guys. Love being with you every week. Have a great rest of your week. I'll see you this weekend.